Hi everyone, it's Joachim Akren, your host of the Elite Game Developers Podcast, a podcast about the entrepreneurs and investors who are building the games companies of the future. In this podcast episode, I have Christian Facey and Wilfried Obeng from Audiomob talking about their founder journey of building their company, uh, which enables audio ads for mobile games. In this discussion, we talk about Wilfred's and Christian's journey to team up and make audio ads happen, how they are learning to become these company builders, and what challenges they're facing in starting and fundraising for a company during the pandemic. All right, we're live. Hey, Wilfred. Hey, Christian. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, hey great, to be here. great to be here. Great. Hey, I'm going to kick things off real quickly here. Can you share your origin stories and how you made your way to found a company called Audiomob? I'll give my side of the story. So this is Christian here, CEO of Audiomob and co-founder. I worked at Google as a strategist, managed around $100 million for the company improving returns and ad spend, that kind of thing. I crossed over to Facebook to, to become a science partner. So that's measuring the true value of ads and how people are influenced along a, a buying funnel or a conversion funnel. And outside of work, I developed my own games, massive gamer, shooting games, etc. And I decided to start making uh, hyper casual mobile games to figure out the, the gaming uh, ecosystem. I taught myself to code, to uh, generate graphics, game design, sound design, etc. And since I was 14, I also developed my own hip hop and jazz music. So very chilled out music. And I'll start streaming this into the game. And then I met Wilfred uh, at a Google Christmas party many years ago. And we just started, started exploring the applications of audio in games. And what we thought was going to be a music streaming company uh, that streamed music into uh, mobile games, we uncovered the whole idea of audio ads. And the fact that streaming that instead of music, you can kind of generate a non-intrusive mechanism for the game developer. And then we invested our savings into a minimum viable product when we left uh, Facebook and, and Google. And then we raised the first round off the back of that. So yeah, that, that, that's kind of the overview story, but Wilfred, feel free to kind of add anything on there. Yeah, no, I think Christian, you covered most of it. I guess for quick summary of my background, I started in banking. So JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, but I studied computer science. I always knew I wanted to move more into the tech sphere. So that's when I ended up at Google. I was in the cloud team originally, then moved into being more on the ad tech side. So being a technical consultant for like Amazon Hilton Intercontinental. But then I wanted to go back to coding. So that's when I got promoted and moved to the Google London office to be a customer solutions engineer. And I think it was there while obviously during that time I was gaming and, and playing a lot of PC and also mobile games and also console games. But then I realized how fast it was growing on the advertising side and then also the opportunity of audio ads. And that's when we kind of ended up seeing that kind of uh, convergence of those uh, two, two spheres. Yeah, and that's kind of how when me and Christian got together and started the company. Before we go and talk a bit more about like your journey and how you're building this company, I wanted to first ask you to, to shortly, in your own words, introduce Audiomob to the listeners, what you guys are building now. Audiomob is the world's first company to produce non-intrusive audio ads within mobile games. So we, we developed this from the aspect of the, of the gamer to be monetized while listening to an audio ad rather than being blocked by a video ad. 
developers can still use you know their video ads their uh, iap uh, monetization methods and use audio ads without damaging retention the gamer isn't blocked by their primary motive playing the game as they're being monetized and advertisers these are audio advertisers not other game developers actually will spend money on these kinds of ads to project their brand into the gaming space so it's great for the game developer the player and the uh, the advertiser yeah that's awesome like you both have that background in google how did the experience of working at such a company shape you in like the lessons that you learned that you're still thinking about today as you're building audio mob this is a really interesting question okay and i remember you mentioned you um typed in something uh, on linkedin uh, the other day which i love which is um that you know when you're building a game studio you know you're building a business and not just the game and when working at google it's like seeing into the future in terms of what the world's most successful company looks like uh, and that's from how product teams are managed to how uh, advertising teams are managed the the ways of approaching um how you build teams and products I know Google got to its status by having developed these functions and have almost a, a perfect level of not perfect but a, a world class method of execution. And Facebook actually was inspired by Google uh, in order to execute the functions in the way that they have. So from a from a seed stage, in terms of the way that we approach things uh, to Series B and beyond, we already have an idea of how we think we're going to do things, and also how we need to figure out how to do the things that we don't know how to do yet so it's 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 influenced us massively in terms of our approach as to how to do things and i'm speaking from a, a mostly obviously from a non-engineering capacity so wilfred can obviously add his his notes as well yeah i think on the, uh, it's, it's interesting while you're speaking christian i was thinking about this i think on the engineering side i think the de- the number one thing about google is definitely thinking outside of the box and i think that that is something they it's not even that they they teach it's almost like they gather the, the people and engineers in particular who are capable of doing that and not just want to build the most complicated products but actually want to build something unique or something that is actually addressing a problem and i, I think that's one of the greatest skills in engineering teams and engineering discussions it was always we're always told um that you shouldn't just say no you should always say yes and so even if you think the idea is like the worst idea, you shouldn't just go, oh no, we're never going to do that. That's not a good way of approaching it. You're always told to be like, yes, but, or how would you address this? Or yes, but how could you address this? Or how could you do this? So I think that was the number one learning that when you actually start saying yes, how, or start pulling, you don't kill people's ideas immediately. You don't kill their creativity with just saying no immediately. So I think thinking outside the box is definitely the number one thing for me when it comes to Google and my top lesson. It's really cool, really cool stuff. Then let's talk about building Audio Mob. Like, how, what was the actual catalyst there for you guys that it made sense to start building an audio ads company that makes audio ads for games, specifically mobile? So shout out to Sid Maeffa from Draper, uh, Draper's Fund. We, we, we had an idea of streaming music into uh, these games and we we're developing a music streaming model and we wanted to in- intermingle audio ads in between the music. And as kind of Greenhorn founders at the time, when it came to pitching this to investors, it's like we could get in the room, but we couldn't like get that investment. And it's because combining two completely different businesses into one and generating a very complex business model didn't make sense. So we were strongly advised to separate both businesses 
And when we did that, I mean, within the, I'd say maybe it was a month or so, and we started getting many more conversations and much further in those conversations. The the validation on both sides of the market, because it is a marketplace model as well, we just started excelling in every aspect of trying to get the business off the ground. And, and then for us at that point, it was obvious that, you know, this, this was definitely the way uh, to go. And, you know, two years later, we come full circle where, you know, in Q1 2021, we actually circled back to the music space and started working with all the major labels. So we definitely made the right decision based on that advice that, that we that we were given. Let's talk more about the audio in mobile games. I think like several people my age think about mobile gaming. They think that, you know, definitely not going to play the audio like turned on at all. But like I have small kids, they love it when they're blasting, you know, that those sounds when they're opening boxes in a game. Like, what have you learned from the data about people playing games with their audio turned on? Well, I'll answer from a research perspective, and then Wolfric could definitely answer from a technical one. We knew that there was definitely something here when we started generating our first pound, and we saw the amount of valid, so audible impressions that were coming back to us, and we we're thinking... Interesting. Everyone thinks that the, the the general user switches off their, their 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 audio on their phone, and that is definitely not the case. Yes, the game sound effects might be muted, but the actual sound effects on the phone aren't. And then we started talking to more developers, and we started figuring out the fact that most developers they may identify if the audio is on or off in the game, but on the device level, it's quite complex figuring out. You know, is the iPhone mute switch on or off? Is Spotify playing? Uh, is the phone ringing? Is 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 SoundCloud playing? Are listening to podcasts? Any any kind of audio activity? And the interesting thing is, we actually spoke to. I don't think I can mention the studio because they haven't published this. But let's say it's one of the top three studios in the world. So that gives you an idea. We spoke to one of them, and they mentioned that um, they came up with the same stat as us, but actually meant many years prior that sixty percent of their players actually have the volume on the device on. But the reason they didn't do anything with that is that they didn't know how to monetize it, which is where we came in. From an assumption standpoint, it's because game developers just didn't have the technology and it was always an assumption. I play the game with the game muted, but they never looked a layer deeper because the technology didn't exist. And then I'll, I'll kind of pass it on to Wilfred to describe the gaps that we did already on. Yeah, that is, a, as Christian mentioned, there's a lot of learnings. And I think that was why at the start, I was very keen for us to work with smaller studios. Like, and I mean, games with like almost like thousands of DAU, not in the hundreds of thousands, because it was really good to get those learnings early on of what these studios wanted and also to build the products with them. So it's like every two weeks we would do it. We Our sprints, even to this day, are still two weeks. As you know, not many game developers are changing the SDK, SDK every two weeks. But the important thing is that we're listening to them quick enough that if there is a developer that says, oh yeah, we want this feature and two weeks pass, we've probably already released a version with that feature in there. And it allows us to actually be much closer to our game development studios and also gives them the choice of whether they want to stick on a version or they want to go uh, forward and choose another version. In terms of some of the interesting learnings that I think is it was interesting is that not as many people have the volume down as a lot of people first think. And that goes from anyone from game studios to game publishers to investors to even users. That a lot of people assume already have the volume down. But as we came to realize, it's the game volume, if anything, that is usually down, but the actual phone volume is never down. And you can see this in like practice if you're looking on like the tube in London or if you're if you're anywhere and you're, you're on public transport or even in the car with your kids, you'll see that they usually are playing music 
or they're listening to something while playing these games. So the audio is up, it's just the device volume's up, but the game audio might be down. So that's why, as Christian mentioned, we did a lot of R&D work in understanding the volume state of the phone at device level, not just at the game level. So that's what we're detecting. And that allows us to do cool things like we can, while the ad's playing, we can pause the user's music. And then after the ad finishes playing, return the user's music back to them, rather than that juggled, gobbled up mess that you can hear sometimes when you have an ad and then you try to listen to audio at the same time. We we try to make that a bit more seamless. That's a really good segue to, to asking you guys, what does a good audio integration look like? What does it feel and how, how should it come up in the game? Can you talk about some of the best practices that you've seen, like creative solutions that developers have done? Yeah, I guess it's a, for, for us, I, we almost like to describe ourselves as the DIY toolkit for game developers. So for us, there's been some really cool, interesting applications. And the reason I say this is because For example, you can integrate audio ads as in some of game developers have as a radio in the game. And then like you interact with it in a virtual world, like in a Sims-like environment, similar to what has been shown in the Big Brother game that we we are in. You can interact with that radio, you press play. And then what happens is that you have an audio ad where you're allowed to continue to do tasks in the game. Or you can have it as a way of like, you get instant reward, right? So you're you're running and you have an invincibility Uh, so you don't have any invincibility so you get off a reward you get a reward that gives you invincibility in your game in an infinite runner that's another example of how you can use an audio ad and what's cool about that is you can actually give the user the reward instantly but also take it away if they actually lower volume or they don't do stuff so it's actually quite interesting in ways game developers are actually taking to incentivize people to do that Then there's other ways in like the more standardized way where it appears as like a, a little block at the bottom of the game and then it's it's just playing while the game is going across. That's another standard way people do it. There's other cool things people do. Some people will like take the audio file, have it playing in the background, but then have the image file that accompanies some of these audio creatives somewhere else in the environment so that it can be clipped on later. And then we have game studios who really are cognizant and conscious of the fact that they need to be mindful of their screen real estate. So they don't want to have this banner ad. And that's why we also allow them to do audio only. So literally just the audio file playing. And that's we've seen some really cool integrations and we have some really cool interesting ones coming along based on that kind of format. The, the cool thing that was happening with video ads back in the day when they were showing up is people were doing creative things with the the way that you do rewarded video ads i think audio ads is definitely uh, sort of it adds so much into the gameplay if you're doing it in a in a funny way where it's it's part of the the universe in a sense where you are in a game yeah 100 yeah yeah no 100 i think what is cool is that we're seeing a lot of game studios start to see the opportunity of audio ads so because and that's why i'm always encouraging them and we at audio mobile are always encouraging game development studios to find new and creative ways of how they can apply these audio ads and that's why i always say like we're a diy kit like if you ask me it's like there's so many different ways you could apply audio ads in your game and it's about how they best fit in because there's places where a video ad may not make any sense especially when you want the user to continue to play the game and there's places where you can even have audio ads accompanying video ads and accompanying banner ads as well because of the fact that they are can be implemented in ways where it's just 
the audio is taken is is being listened to for a limited period of time 15 30 seconds and then it, it kind of disappears and then there's, there's the user has full control of what they're what we're already doing or has access to uh, to be monetized in other ways let's talk about the, the company building aspects and the culture that you're you're bringing to to audio mob what has been your approach so far to having the right kind of culture form into your company when you're hiring you're scaling you guys are growing constantly in headcount what has been the approach so far we have a couple of core things that we try and instill in the company i mean outside of kind of the main cultural values which are which i'll I'll cover in a sec what we what we try and make sure is that when we onboard candidates and and we we kind of generate that framework so the culture is always threaded into the company it's just things like for instance make sure there's psycho- psychological safety, right? That, that is a term that is certainly more popular given the the nature of uh, of the uh, the media sphere right now. So making sure that our company is psychologically safe for employees, employees feel like they can be their total true selves, but also making sure that we have a framework so that we can overcome what is now known as the paradox of, of tolerance. If you've got two people with opposing, um, completely opposing viewpoints, that's actually okay. You don't need to get angry at each other as long as there is a, a framework for the rules of engagement so that you can overcome the paradox of tolerance. And this is a weakness that I certainly have seen in many of the, uh, the large companies that exist today, large technology companies. And uh, again, like we're working at Google and Facebook and finding out methods, shortfalls and advantages. Uh, we try and bring the, the, this, this kind of a, a deliberate a culture creation methodology into the company that we're building so that, 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 that's, that's really important and um, we do we do mention this on the interview phase and then speaking of the interview phases so there's things like for instance we will always leave 10 to 15 minutes at the end of every single stage so candidates can actually get to know us during the interview phase and ask more and more questions about the true nature of the roles that they're going into so it's just these key things i mean again does it take more time? Absolutely. But then it does help us get to know candidates and candidates to get to know us better. So uh, there is a culture fit. And in the interview for every single interview now, there is a culture uh, fit phase as well. Does it mean that our interview process is slightly longer? Yes, but it ensures that we at least have the extra vetting process to make sure that the uh, that the candidate is comfortable with the culture we're trying to create and we're comfortable with the uh, with the candidate that they'll be a good fit and then lastly we have taken a very deliberate approach and this was before we actually finished our seed phase in terms of you know, getting all the advisors from uh, the google startup cohort as well as our personal networks that have had experience building cultures into the company and we had hours of whiteboarding sessions and comm sessions and we've actually put cultural values on our website and we only really see companies that are, you know, beyond a couple of hundred people kind of integrate this into our site. But we wanted to make it very easy to find out like what the ethos of audio mob is. And our main values are consumer first, having an owner's mindset, teamwork, inclusion, and flexibility. And the reason we've included it on the site is that so our incoming employees and current employees always have a reference of what we're trying to build and the deliberate approach that we're taking. That 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 in essence is is kind of how we're we're uh, building culture. We are taking a deliberate approach rather than kind of going along with it because we think that's the that's the best way to do it. It's for sure. As you're scaling the company now, bringing in more and more people, what have you seen are the hard things about 
doing that? Some of the hardest things about bringing in people and, and scaling the company, it's twofold. And I guess if you asked someone this a couple of years ago before the world completely changed, the answer would be very different. There, there, there isn't a rule book. Well, there probably is now, but there wasn't a rule book when uh, we launched in you know 2020. There wasn't a rule book as to how to build a culture completely virtually. Or the fact that, for instance, um, a typical sales agency or advertiser sales rep, for instance, building relationships, taking people out to dinner, like all of those typical media sales, you know how to do virtually. There wasn't a rule book how to evaluate if candidates could still, you know, achieve that that kind of trajectory in their role without doing that. And on, on the flip side, in terms of, you know, the gaming industry, I mean, you've obviously been to more conferences than I can count now, but going to these conferences, I've only been there to a couple of physical ones because of the pandemic, but the gaming industry, wonderful industry, many, many close relationships as well. Generating those relationships from a virtual standpoint is a, is a completely different task. So changing the whole way that you have to approach these kinds of roles was very, very difficult. Uh, we've definitely got a graph on it now, but it did take a while for us to, to kind of get. And then there's a, a question of just the little things like, you know, whether it's bumping into an employee, talking to them, looking over to your left, asking a question. There are all these little things that you take for granted that created new operational variables that we had to plan around. Everything from that to team socials to a career development chats and things like that. But how to generate rapport with your team virtually. It's all, it's all these different things that we had to think about. And then there's the transition from becoming virtual to going back into the office from a flexible basis. And the fact that we're employing people from, you know, more corners of the, of the globe. So all of these things, while they are, you know, they're people that we hire in order to execute these functions, it creates untold amount of unknown variables, which, which, again, if you've got more unknown variables, then it's just more difficult to de-risk the business, right? So just, just, just kind of figuring out what the extra unknown unknowns are has been the most difficult standpoint. And I guess any business that started within the, the next two years would have experienced this. And then the last thing I'll happen is, you know, the global uh, geopolitical landscape right now is, is not in a good place, obviously, with a terrible situation in Ukraine. And that also has added some complexities to general hiring to the partners that we have as well. And, and, and you know, how certain companies are affected more than others. And there's a, a whole new plethora of unknown unknowns that most companies aren't prepared for. So it's just these constant unknown unknowns that are literally unprecedented. That's the most difficult aspect when it comes to how to you know scale the company and bring in people in this kind of environment how can you be decisive with like these unknown unknowns <laughs> like how, how do you move forward when when you hit that kind of blocker so i guess the example um that i'll give and i remember i attended a, a me and wilfred attended a talk with the founder of paypal in 2020 when we we're trying to figure out something unprecedented has happened the world is shut down <laughs> how do you pivot <laughs> out of that And what they and what what we actually did is um, we made a seven figure bet on developing our R and D and bringing forward certain products for two years, so we had more opportunities to diversify how we were going to create uh, revenue for the company. And the, the bit of advice was you just double down your uh, on your bets uh, in terms of what you can control, and then when things become better, you'll come out the other side stronger. That's what happened in 2021. And The way that we kind of get around unknown unknowns is we're constantly thinking about the probability of potential scenarios that two years ago we wouldn't have even thought would be possible. And then we invest in the right methods to de-risk those specific things um, from happening. 
whether it's, uh, you know, the world shutting down again because of a new COVID strain or whether it's, um, you know, if the geopolitical landscape means that some of our employees have to leave, then we have to increase the amount that we hire to prepare for that. Does it mean that our burn goes up? Absolutely, but it de-risks the business. Making sure that there are more mature, more advanced methods of employee support that typically maybe a Series B company would have, whether it's you know, and providing mental support for employees, providing financial support in in terms of financial management support for the for the employees. Like it's all these different things to prepare for the unknown unknowns. We will definitely miss something, but the more that we prepare, uh, the less the impact will be when that unknown unknown kind of rears its head. So, so that so we just try and control what we can control with the, uh, the investments that we that we can make right now. Yeah, that makes really a lot of sense. Can you Great. mention like one thing that you've both been surprised about once you've become a founder and and been a founder now for a few years? I've been talking a lot, so I'm going to let Wilfred answer this one first. I think. I would definitely say the biggest um, surprise is the amount of admin that you actually end up having to do, especially at the start. I think also the amount that you have to know how to basically be resourceful. I won't say scrappy, but I'll say resourceful. So actually being more efficient with what you have. So I think those two, the amount of admin and how resourceful you have to be with, with the little you have, just making sure that it counts and basically being really efficient. It also helped me understand why even at Google, the there was always the obsession with keeping the team small. So keeping it to like a maximum of eight people, it made me realize why. And it's also to do with that thing of making sure that you're being resourceful with the with the with the stuff that you have, and that you're almost being very calculated and very precise with all of the different resources that you have. So yeah, I'll say it's definitely those two. The amount of admin that you have to do is a substantial, and then the second thing is yeah, I'd say just how resourceful you have to be. Yeah, the admin is actually something that not a lot of founders. They, they don't really notice it that it, it is there but it's it is huge like when i've i've done a couple of like audits for people like founders calendars just looking at where they're spending time and admin is always coming up as a major blocker from spending time with the team for instance so it's yeah definitely yeah go ahead christian yeah from my side no you definitely hit the nail on the head with that one wilfred admin but for me it's i didn't expect to have to adapt to such significant macro changes in the world so you know again like every, everyone's experienced like like the pandemic right and and, and having to navigate in that and now we're experiencing you know what's going on in europe and i'm actually expecting Touch wood. I want to be a pessimist on the call, but again, like, what if the COVID strain mutates and there's something that happens next year? So I'm, I'm always, I always feel like I'm on the cusp of having to make some major strategic decisions that will shift, perhaps, you know, when our next raise is going to be or what country we're going to scale in. And while that is normal in the sense of, you know, sea levels having to make these strategic decisions. I keep hearing the term that we are in unprecedented times and there isn't a rule book for how we have to operate in the current environment. And that for me is, has been surprising. So yeah, like the last, the last two years have been insane. And I think everyone on the call knows that, right? So the, the difference yeah. was like 2010, the, the last decade didn't have any macro events. So it's like, yeah, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. And the previous one had basically the dot-com and then the financial crisis. So yeah, yeah. Yeah, let's see how the, the rest of the decade rolls around. I want to go 
to some final questions here. Uh, what's your favorite book? It's a very hard question. I'm trying to think between growth hacker marketing and the obstacle is the way. I'm probably going to go with with growth hacker marketing. I think so. The way that that, that I that I use books is when I when I have a problem that I can apply the knowledge of the book to, I will definitely go and, and read that book, and I read it in little increments. I remember the book that I finished the quickest was definitely uh, growth hacker marketing. And it was in the midst of the pandemic because me and Wolfie were trying to figure out every possible way to figure out how are we going to scale out of this because our initial plan that we've been developing is not going to work this year. And I applied Growth, Maca, growth Hacker uh, Marketing, and this is by Ryan Holiday, to absolutely everything that we're trying to do from how we're trying to get advertisers on board to explaining to game developers in various ways the, the, the benefits of what we're doing to developing myself and Wolfred into like micro influencers in the specific spaces that we needed to have our voices heard in. Yeah, it's the only book where I was making essay notes in terms of like how to apply the knowledge. And it it, it really did uh, help with the way that we uh, scaled demand in 2021. So that's got to be my favorite book so far anyway. Ryan Holiday needs a shout out if anybody hasn't picked hey, up his book. Shout out to Ryan. <laughs> yeah, it's like, those books are really worth reading. The ego is the enemy, stillness is the key, and yeah, nice. good stuff. Yeah. Ooh, I'm struggling between two. The practical side of me says the lean startup, and the more unpractical side of me and the marketing side of me says oversubscribe. But I, I think the lean startup, in terms of if you if you really want to be look at how to be scrappy and how to basically do a lot with a little and be more scientific with your approach. And I actually think, I would actually argue, it's more so the first half of the book of The Lean Startup in terms of the way he talks about building Second Life and how they would basically A-B test all of the different features to work out what users want. And always that assumption I always challenge founders about around what they think is a cool idea versus what actual people think is a cool idea are two separate things. And I think the book does a good job of of kind of taking you through that journey with yeah. so actually yeah, i'll say the lean startup although oversubscribed is a very cool book in terms of how you can do unique things to get people interested in what you're creating and stuff so but i say more practically the lean startup right yeah like eric reese's experience it was actually imbu is the, the the thing that he was building before he wrote the book close to second life as a virtual world as well the it's so interesting because his experience is so applicable to all of these metaverse things that are going on right now. So yeah, definitely recommend as well that book. It's a masterful piece. Hey, I, I have this question that I always like to ask. Do you guys have a story that has shaped you in how you approach your work today? I'm going to go back quite a long way, but it is a fairly short story. So a lot of people may be surprised that I actually failed all my A-levels and I wasn't a star student. While we are founders, and if you had to Google audio mob, you know, I've had a lot of good press, good round, etc. You know, I didn't go to like a top university or anything. I failed all my A-levels. And when I was 16, so in the UK, for those of you that don't go to the UK, you've got this thing, this two-year period called sixth form college. You do two years, then you go to university. In my first year, failed everything. And I um, remember thinking that I absolutely need to figure out how to learn what I need to learn so I don't repeat a year of sixth form college and I figure out how to you know, get good grades, get work experience, become successful, etc. I, I pretty much had an obsession with figuring out how my mind works in order to learn things as quickly as humanly possible. So I retook all of my A-levels, uh, so two years worth in the last year, got into uni, 
buy like scraps. I actually got enough just to go in through clearing. And then I spent a four year process trying to figure out how my mind likes to ingest knowledge. And my D's, E's and unclassified grades use started turning to straight A's. Then I switched to getting work experience, started getting lots of work experience. Then I switched to more entrepreneurial activity like FX trading, starting events companies, etc. And what I started learning is that there is basically a way to learn absolutely anything if you want to learn it. And if you figure out how your mind can ingest the knowledge and it, and it kind of varies depending on what I'm trying to learn, but I use this to approach game development when I liked games and I wanted to learn it. And I still use it to this day in terms of, you know, the problems that you face as, as founders of a startup, especially in the last, you know, two, two and a half years, really difficult. But I know that now if I need to learn something just like, learning how to raise the series a for instance like i absolutely can learn how to do it and given enough time and that's how that's that's what keeps me quite calm when there are like thousands of really serious problems that you need to need to deal with uh, at a startup you know every every month so that's super fascinating how, how did you learn how to learn like how what was the inflection point the inflection point was when i so i'd say maths was my weak point. And now I'm good enough to, to get things done and design products and all that kind of stuff. And when I was at university, I dived into a statistics course, knowing that if I failed, I would have to repeat that whole year of university. And yeah. I did everything as trial and error. So I went to study groups. I went to private sessions with my lecturers. I befriended people that I knew were good at statistics and mentioned like, I'm trying to get better. Let's hang out kind of thing. I even, as soon as I got a contact Concept, I would go to apply for a mentor to teach that concept to people that didn't know it. I wrote posters of equations and went to sleep looking at the posters so I could memorize them. I tried everything and eventually so I found a combination of things. Yeah. So yeah. you attack a topic from all directions, basically. Then it's interesting. Very fascinating. Yeah. Wilfred, do you have something to share? Yeah, I think the, the, the model of my story is I, I realized very quickly that networking is key like it doesn't really matter how, like I always say this it doesn't uh, matter how smart you are of course you have to be knowledgeable in a particular subject I'm not saying you could be completely not knowledgeable to a particular subject but what I am saying is I realized very quickly like that networking was really important because what I noticed uh, was a lot of people go to like university or even go to like some of the top universities Oxford Cambridge and they will get out and they were struggling to find jobs. So very young, like 16, I actually realized the importance of um, actually networking and actually meeting people. And also the importance of that, the worst someone can say is no, to be honest. So a lot of the time people would tell me like, oh yeah, you it's too hard for you to get into something like Google. Or like my teacher tried to tell, tell me that, oh, I should look for a university that's a bit lower down the list that isn't as high. And for me, I always took those moments as moments to find the right people, but then be very efficient in who I also worked with and understood. So when I say networking is key, it's like I, I applied to Google when I was like 16 because I loved this YouTube video. I saw of them all eating like cake and having all of this free stuff. And I was like, so these guys code and they just have all of this like fancy life. Like this is, I was like, this is, I was like a dream. So, but everyone would tell me like, oh, you, but that's almost impossible to get into. So I remember applying when I was 16 and it was quite funny. Um, I applied when I was 16 and obviously they rejected it because they're like, who is this person at 16 years old trying to apply? But then I made it like a plan of action of how I would get there. 
And I didn't go through, oh, I'm just going to keep on applying. I was like, what event that Google do, do, can I join? So I basically would go to like sign up to any like event that they would throw that was open to the public. So if it was like one of their like Christmas events or one of their other events where, <clears throat> or like International Women's Day or something like that, you can go and actually have these celebration events. So I basically used that event as a way to then go and network and then just ask every single person. I didn't care what division they were. I was an engineer, but I did. I was like, I don't care if you're in HR. I don't care if you're in the arts and cultures department. But I was using it as a way of getting that network. And what that meant is on LinkedIn, I had, when it came to um, applying, I could ask like five people, oh yeah, who's the person that I need to speak to in HR? And of course, three of them will probably never apply, but at least two and a lot of averages, like someone will apply. So I used that as my way and as of, of navigating. And I started to really realize that honestly, like life is like 70% networking. You can be super smart, but... If you have no no one or you don't, you don't know someone who at least can make that connection, then it, you you can be literally dead on arrival. Like you don't really have any uh, opportunities or or anywhere to navigate. So yeah, that was my key learning um, from that story of of trying to do it like the direct way and then realizing actually it's more important that you just speak to people. But obviously, be knowledgeable of what you what you what you can bring. Yeah, yeah, that's so good. Yeah. As the final question, like, because there's a lot of developers out there who would definitely want to check out AudioMob and try out audio ads. What's the best way for developers to get in touch with you guys? The best way to get in touch with us is, is twofold. One is just to reach out on our contact form on our website. Uh, myself and Wolfrey see that, and so does our, our uh, developer relations team. Or it could be as simple as uh, signing up to our wait list. Uh, we have hundreds and hundreds of developers that are signed up that we're uh, supporting at an individual basis. Uh, so if it's of interest, yeah, please uh, sign up. Got it. Hey, good. This was so good. Uh, so fascinating to talk with you guys. Super happy that you're doing this company. And I wish you all the best. And uh I'll see you out there soon at the conferences. Thanks again, Joachim. Thanks. See you at the conferences, Take care. See you guys. Bye. If you like our content, please hit follow or subscribe to our show on your favorite podcasting app so that you'll get notified when next week's episode is available. And in the meantime, please go and check out our website at EliteGameDevelopers.com and sign up for our weekly newsletter on what's happening in gaming startups. See you next time, guys. Bye-bye.